Welcome to the 63rd A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series, entitled Past Belief, Visions of Early Christianity in Renaissance and Reformation Europe, Anthony Grafton focuses on the efforts of artists and scholars to recreate the early history of Christianity in a period of crisis in the Church from the 15th to the 17th century. In this fifth lecture, entitled Martyrdom and Persecution, the Uses of Early Christian Suffering, originally delivered at the National Gallery of Art on May 4, 2014, Professor Grafton shows that early Christian martyrs were seen as the core of the true Church and thus were used in the Renaissance by Catholic and Protestant scholars alike to defend either the status quo or reform agendas. Visual and textual references to ancient and modern martyrs were tightly linked in this period. Ancient martyrdom resonated with both the devout and the radical at a time when the theatre of violence created by the first ideological wars in Europe made martyrdom not a distant but a living experience, melding past, present and future. Good afternoon, and thank you for your continued wonderful welcome. Before I start today, I should say that some of the texts you will hear and some of the images you will see are quite disturbing. Uh, And though I don't apologize for that, they are all part of the historical record, it's probably good to be prepared that you will be seeing some sites which are um, exceedingly um, painful in every possible way. I begin with words both beautiful and terrible. That they gave her cripple water, that she ate spoiled meat, that this was her penance, that she saw those long nights through bedded on stone and straw, that women in the garden by the white tower turned to one another amazed. What is that animal? The river beat hour after hour as they racked her back from the water gate. John Bale in sorrow So had Anne Askew the flaming brands of fire, nor screamed until the first flame reached her breast. My dream of her puts me in close by, her poor bare feet, her shift just catching a flame that chases the line of the hem. And when I wake in sunlight, that flare is the flare in her eye, that rising note in my ear, the singing deep in green branches, that low rumble, her blood at a rolling boil. And what she screams from the center now, as her hair goes up in a rush, as her fingers char, as the spit on her tongue bubbles and froths, as she browns from heel to head, as she cracks and splits, as she renders to spoil, the only thing she can get to me through the furnace as I lean into her is, yes, it will be fire, it will be fire, it will be fire. With these extraordinary lines, the poet David Harsent describes the torture and execution of Anne Askew, who was burned to death at Smithfield in her mid-twenties on July 16, 1546, at the end of the reign of King Henry VIII. Askew was the daughter of a rich man and a passionate Protestant. Her Catholic husband, Thomas Keim, expelled her from her house. She took back her maiden name and preached in public that the Eucharist did not undergo transubstantiation during the Mass. Arrested and interrogated in 1545, she was released. But in 1546, she was arrested again. Racked until her joints were dislocated, she refused to give up the names of her associates. 
A month later, the authorities executed her, chained to a seat because she couldn't stand, her body covered with gunpowder. As a contumacious heretic, a heretic who refused to repent, she was not strangled before the fire was lit, the customary mercy. No one knows what happened to Anne Askew's ashes, but she left behind something which survives and is deeply troubling, an account written in the first person of her interrogations. To read it, as to read the interrogations of Joan of Arc, is to meet a woman convinced of her mission, contemptuous of her judges, consistently inarticulate in circumstances that would silence almost anyone else. Asked to interpret a passage from St. Paul, she replied, Ah, St. Paul says that as a woman I shouldn't say anything at all. Her wit is never failing, even in extremes. Anne Askew's story can stand for those of hundreds of others, Lutherans and Anabaptists, Calvinists and Catholics, who died for their religions in the 16th and 17th centuries. Men and women, ordained priests and lay hedge preachers, official missionaries and ordinary housewives entered theaters of cruelty created and designed to enforce Christian unity. Many of them, like Askew, showed a resoluteness that's now almost impossible to comprehend. Even their enemies admitted as much. Reports of Anabaptists dying by Catholics and Protestants highlight their courage. Yet, as the historian Brad Gregory pointed out in a great book, Salvation at Stake, it is impossible to identify a single official in the 16th century age of persecution who decided, after watching martyrs suffer, that he had been wrong to impose such sufferings on them, or more generally, that it was wrong to do so at all. These facts make the history of Europe's early modern martyrs troubling to anyone who studies and marvels at the creative power of religion and human society. In the framework of these lectures, it's one particular point that calls for our attention and that also inspires special discomfort. In the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, basically every observer agreed that the triumph of Christianity in the Roman, over the Roman Empire had rested in large part on the courage of the early Christian martyrs, of those who, starting with Jesus himself, died rather than surrender their convictions. Martyr, of course, is a Greek word. It means a witness, initially a witness in a trial. And the martyrs stand trial and are interrogated, so they speak from the position of witnesses. Argument rages among scholars as to whether martyrdom is a new concept with Christianity or an older one. I tend to agree with Candida Moss, a brilliant young student of martyrdom at Notre Dame, who holds that there were both pagan and Jewish precedents for Christian martyrdom. What's certain is that martyrdom is, in Christian terms, a special kind of witness. It's a defeat which paradoxically becomes a triumph over those who inflict it. A death, though usually, though not always, suffered while bearing witness to a cause that triumphs over death. Jesus himself had given the great precedent for this by suffering as rebellious slaves did on the cross before rising again. And so did dozens of the early Christian saints whose feast days filled the Catholic calendar. Christian scholarship and art had to do justice to these, early, to the, these early Christian martyrs if they were to do justice to the early Christian experience. 
scholars and artists and ordinary Christians had to know what the martyrs actually suffered and how they suffered it in the context in which they did so. And it's that, again, rather disturbing realm of visions of early Christianity that we'll be investigating today. It's already clear that the history of martyrdom was no more abstract than martyrdom itself for our protagonists. Anne Askew was a poet as well as a preacher. She made and sang a ballad while she was in Newgate Prison. And as you see, as she looked forward to her own suffering, she consoled herself by looking backward. Faith in the Father's old obtained righteousness, which make me very bold to fear no world's distress. Now rejoice in heart and hope bid me do so, for Christ will take my part and ease me of my woe. Just before Christ himself, the Savior, the only Savior for Protestants, comes the precedent of the ancients. John Bale, the grimly passionate Protestant scholar who preserved her examinations, insisted much more strongly than Askew did on the tight connection between past and present, the melding of historical perspectives when he published her record. He pointed out that in 177, the Christians of Lyon and Vienne in Gaul had recorded the suffering of a brave Christian woman named Blandina, who was hung from a post, exposed to wild animals, and then wrapped in a net and trampled to death by a bull. Bale found many explicit parallels between their cases. Coupled, I have these two examples together, he said, because I find them in so many points agree. Blandina was young and tender. So was Anne Askew also. But that which was frail of nature in them both, Christ made most strong by his grace. Blandina had three earnest companions in Christ, so had Anne Askew three fire fellows. Both had the courage to surrender their bodies and their lives. Blandina at the stake showed a visage unterrified. So did Anne Askew, a countenance stout, mighty, and earnest. A woodcut of Askew adorned the title page of Bale's book. It represents Askew as a kind of up-to-date Blandina, an early Christian martyr in her white robe, bearing the palm frond, which was one of the traditional identifiers for martyrs, and standing by the Roman serpent on whom she is, of course, trampling in her death. Bale pushed hard, sometimes harder than the evidence actually allowed, to find his parallels between the ancient and the modern martyr, to dissolve the temporal distance between them. The ancient narrative in Eusebius's church history recorded that though Blandina was terribly tossed about by the bull, she felt none of the things which were happening to her on account of her hope and firm hold about what had been entrusted to her and her communion with Christ. Bale said, full of God and his verve was Blandina, so was Anne Askew. Christ wonderfully triumphed in Blandina, so did he and Anne Askew when she made no noise on the rack and so earnestly afterward rejoiced in him, though Bale knew perfectly well that her screams were heard outside the White Tower and that her death was a scene of graphic and unforgettable cruelty. What impelled Bale, what impelled so many others, to insist that modern martyrs were reliving the lives and works of their ancient counterparts? What did ancient martyrdom mean to these early modern Christians? How did they represent it and why? These are my central questions for today, and as we'll see, the answers may seem unexpected and even paradoxical. So let me begin by making one admission. I can't possibly cover all aspects of early modern response to ancient martyrdom in one lecture. 
I'll give you one example of the complexities of this story. Joseph Scaliger, that great polymath whom I have mentioned before, was known to his contemporaries above all as a supremely erudite scholar. Bottomless pit of erudition, they called him. And eagle in the clouds. I guess I'd rather be the eagle in the clouds. In his 60s, he produced the greatest of his learned works, a reconstruction of the Greek chronicle of Eusebius, half of it lost since antiquity. So each page of the Greek is his reconstruction of this lost and formidably technical text. The book is a masterpiece of polyglot and interdisciplinary scholar, and for the most part, unremittingly technical. But at one point, the technical details dissolve away. Eusebius, in his chronicle, mentions the martyrs of Lyon and Vienne, including Blandina. All he says is, many people in Gaul died gloriously for the name of Christ. Their contests have survived until the present day, preserved in books. And Scaliger, in a commentary otherwise dedicated to issues like who was the consul in AD 212, suddenly says, these and the martyrdom of Polycarp survive today in Eusebius's church history. They are the church's oldest martyrdoms. Reading them affects the souls of the pious so deeply that they can never satisfy themselves and put these texts away. I have never read anything in ecclesiastical history that leaves me in a state of greater disturbance so that I feel as if I am beside myself. And his close friend Isaac Kasaubin, reading the copy of the book that Scaliger sent him, reads this note and writes in his own copy, see Scaliger's piety and the emotion that he feels reading the acts of the martyrs. These two men felt a complex relation to the martyrs, to them rather as to me as when I encounter Anne Askew. They feel themselves meeting a kind of human experience that shakes them from the top of their head to their feet, something for which there is no counterpart. That's by no means the normal response, and it's not the one which I'll mostly be looking at today, but I wanted to insist that it existed too. And for those who want to pursue it in art, let me recommend a fabulous recent book by the very grand Willibald Sauerländer on how Rubens pursued martyrdom in art, again, in much more complex ways than the people I'll be talking about today. Now, Bale and and, uh, others like him really didn't read the accounts of martyrdoms in order to set themselves into a different world. On the contrary, they read ancient martyrdoms in order to see what modern martyrs would do as they began a second movement, a reformation parallel to the first movement by which Christianity had spread. Again and again, Bale writes to friends like Matthew Parker, the Archbishop of Canterbury, confer, he means compare, the massacre of British priests that took place when Augustine's mission came to England with that which was done again after the departure of the same false religion under Queen Mary and King Philip. I could prove that coming in and this going out much to agree, both in times and in numbers of martyrs that were slain. So for Baal, there's a pattern in history and the repetition of martyrdoms in the same numbers, taking the same form, with women behaving in super female ways as he sees it, all indicates that a radical change has taken place in human history. He's not reading to feel the passion of the martyrs, but to see where history itself is going. And what Bale suggested 
His friend and colleague, John Fox, made explicit in his Acts and Monuments, um, often called Fox's Book of Martyrs, though it's actually a comprehensive history of the church. In this magnificent title page, you see apocalyptic images brought together, the saints in their white robes calling for the judging and avenging of those who had killed them, the trumpets sounding that mean that the end of history is coming, images from Revelation, images from Paul swirling together. What he indicates visually here, what he indicates in his book as a whole, is that the martyrs are the core of the true church, which is how the book of Revelation portrays them. History itself revolves around the martyrs, and the modern revival of martyrdom to which Fox dedicated his book, just as it repeats the patterns of ancient martyrdom, shows that history itself is coming to its apocalyptic close. To watch Fox tell individual stories is to see how antiquity and contemporary times permeate one another. Fox tells the story of the execution of two Protestant bishops, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley in Oxford on October 15, 1555. Many of you know the Martyrs Memorial that you can still see at Oxford uh, that records this grim occasion. Before the two men burned, they talked at the stake. The the burning itself was hideous, and Bale tells it, but Fox tells it in great detail. And in the second edition of Fox's book, which appeared in 1570, he tells the story in a particularly affecting way. Latimer says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Now, in the first edition of Fox's book, which appeared in 1563, Latimer doesn't say this. And as many scholars have pointed out, Latimer, in the 1570 edition, is partly quoting an ancient martyr recorded by Eusebius. In the second century, Polycarp, bishop of Smyrna, was put to death, and according to Eusebius, as he entered the arena where he was to die, he heard a voice saying, "'Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man.'" These were words that burned themselves into the minds of readers. This is John Jewell's copy of Eusebius. He's the Archbishop of, Bishop of Salisbury in the late 16th century. And here you see him copying the words that, Poly, that Polycarp heard. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And then writing low as he thinks about the power of this story. How do we account for the appearance of these words in the second edition of Fox? There's obviously an intention to draw the parallels, and there were many. Latimer and Polycarp were both old men. Both of them bleed terribly as they're executed, so the stories are parallel. But something more is going on here. Latimer seems to be repeating Polycarp's story. Does this mean that Fox wanted to make his story more moving and added the the reminiscence to Eusebius? Or does it mean that he found another source? We know that Fox was always interrogating witnesses and collecting more documents. And in the first edition, he'd said he could never find out exactly what Latimer and Ridley had said to one another. Could Latimer have remembered Polycarp's experience before his death and repeated these words? It seems just as possible as that Fox did. 
In any event, what we see here is a particular approach to martyrdom, one that sees ancient and modern martyrdom as tightly connected, each as modeling and responding to the other. Now, martyrdom was not new in Renaissance, ancient martyrdom was not new in Renaissance and Reformation Europe. More than half of the days in the calendar were marked by the feasts of the saints, and dozens of these saints were martyrs. They appeared in artwork of every kind, calmly brandishing iconographic objects, which often included the weapons by which their martyrdom had been carried out, as these saints hold swords and axes, and in Catherine's case, a wheel. Their great compendium, the Golden Legend, assembled by the 13th century Archbishop of Genoa, Jacobus de Voragine, tells the story of all the Christian martyrs of the New Testament and other early sources like Eusebius, and adds even more colorful martyrs who came later. My own favorite is St. Barbara, and my own favorite portrayal of her is in the Walters Art Gallery. It's a magnificent image, I think. She is uh, described as a third-century saint whose father attempted to kill her because she insisted on adding a third window to her tower, the tower he had built for her, in order to illustrate the doctrine of the Trinity. She escapes the father, but eventually dies at the hands of a Roman governor who is himself then consumed by lightning in a wonderfully appropriate act of divine vengeance. (laughs) Now, Barbara is actually a late addition to the calendar of saints, and there are many of those in, in Jacob's compilation. Traditionally, we were taught in my generation to think that Renaissance humanists didn't pay much attention to saints or or martyrs, that they were interested in antiquity. Poggio Bracciolini, for example, that wonderful plump manuscript hunter who is the hero of Stephen Greenblatt's book, The Swerve, a man who chased manuscripts into every dusty monastic library, who loved antiquities and describes in a charming letter the two girls who mock him for standing out in the hot Roman sun copying an ancient inscription. Poggio loved antiquities, but the only portrait bust we have from his collection is this one, a reliquary bust of St. Lawrence, discovered in terrible condition in a London antique shop by the monument man himself, James Rorimer, just after World War II. A poor man, we know from Poggio himself, had dreamt that relics of St. Lawrence would be discovered uh, in, in a Roman church, and Poggio had this re- reliquary bust executed in order to preserve them properly. Lawrence was one of the seven deacons of the Roman church, ordered to give up the church's property to the Roman emperor. Instead, he gave it out to the poor and surrendered himself. Poggio himself, though very anti-clerical, spent much of his life in, in papal service, and I think he must have seen Lawrence as a particularly appropriate saint for him, an honest member of the papal curia as well as everything else. But it is remarkable that this man, whom we always think of as a classicist, had this splendid bust as a, a prized possession. And what we've learned in recent years, thanks to younger scholars like Alison Fraser, who have looked at the way humanists collected relics, read the lives of saints, prosecuted their religion, is that they were very interested indeed in martyrs, very interested indeed in the tales that they found about them in collections like the Golden Legend. The problem was humanists were scholars, 
They liked their stories to be chronologically consistent. They liked their stories to come from reliable sources. They liked their stories to correspond with what else they knew about the Roman world. And the martyrdom stories and the golden legend and similar sources didn't. So by the early 16th century, scholars like Juan Luis Vives, a friend of Erasmus's, were quite sure that though the lives of martyrs were important, they needed to be rewritten. Everyone, said Vives, writes the acts of the saints as they feel about them. The feelings, not the truth, dictate the history. That history of the saints, known as the golden legend, is unworthy of saints and Christians alike. I don't know why it's called golden. It was written by a man with an iron heart and a leaden mouth. So there's already, by the 1530s, when Vives writes this, a widespread sense that new work needs to be done, that we need to understand better who were the real martyrs and what they did. But the fact that really charged the study of martyrdom with existential pathos was the fact that as the Protestant Revolution spread and fissured, men and women were beginning to undergo what they experienced as martyrdom again. Lutherans like Tyndall being hunted down for defying King Henry and other Catholic monarchs, Catholic missionaries in Protestant territory in the New World and in Asia. Suddenly, martyrdom was once again a living experience, not something recollected in a tranquil, distant look at the, at the holier and happier days of the ancient church. As scholars looked for information about martyrs, they turned to standard sources. Meredith Hanmer, who translated Eusebius into English in 1577, really saw the book as a kind of martyrology, a theater of martyrs, and appreciates it. How can we choose but be ravished with zeal when we see the professors of the faith torn in pieces of wild beasts, crucified, beheaded, stoned, stifled, beaten to death with cudgels, fried to the bones, slain alive, burned to ashes, hanged on gibbets, drowned, brained, scourged, maimed, quartered. It's a grisly, grisly set of images. As other scholars began to look at Eusebius and other texts, they realized that there was more to be said about ancient martyrdom than even Eusebius said. And Fox devoted a substantial amount of his Book of Martyrs to ancient martyrdom. Now, Fox's book is one of the extraordinary propaganda works of modern history, a work which used every possible feature of illustration as well as text to make its points. This is a a spectacularly unpleasant image of Bishop Bonner of London, the Catholic bishop flogging a heretic. And you'll notice that the bishop looks uh, extremely... um, uh, obsessed in this and that his codpiece is very fully packed. It's, a, it's an imputation of, of sexual interest in the act, which was quite common among Protestants criticizing the Catholic Church in this time. So the book is by no means only a work of scholarship, but it is a work of scholarship too. Fox collected information from every source he could find about the martyrs of the ancient church. He told their stories and he laid out this extraordinary gap of the punishments inflicted on them, each one of which is supplied with a page reference so that you can go to the page in his book and find a more detailed account. So this book of martyrs, though it is a vicious and precisely directed attack on contemporary Catholicism, is also a full and rich conspectus of the ancient martyrs. 
and it's an absolutely extraordinary work. By 1563, the first edition was a mere 1,800 pages long. By 1583, it was 2,154 pages, a vast conspectus of ancient and modern martyrs with every possible parallel between them drawn. As Fox and other Protestants published these very erudite but also very ideological works on ancient martyrdom, Catholic scholars were not slow to begin to respond. In the 1570s, the Carthusian Laurentius Surius published a six-volume collection of saints' lives based, as he said, on the approved sources. And in the 1580s, Cesare Baronio, the great historian of the church, brought out a revised edition of the official list of martyrs, which went day by day through the ecclesiastical year and which infuriated Catholics in many cities by refusing to admit their martyrs as well attested. So there's a massive scholarly effort to uh, to discriminate between good sources and bad, true martyrs and invented ones. But the real Catholic answer to Bale and Fox took quite a different form. From early in the 1580s on, one Roman church after another was decorated systematically by painters whom art historians usually would classify as of the third or at best the second rank with images of the ancient martyrs as systematic and as functional as the woodcuts in Fox's book. Take the wonderful 5th century round church of Santo Stefano Rotondo. This became, in the 16th century, part of the Jesuit colleges for Hungary and Germany, the colleges where Jesuits were formed to go into these countries and take them back from the Protestants, preaching against the Protestants and risking their own lives in doing so. Niccolo Cicignani, the main creator of these frescoes, decorated the church with images of martyrdom chosen from the first four centuries of Christian history. The decision to do this was made by the rector of the college, Michele Laritano. He was the first, a life says, who began to have the martyrdoms endured by the holy martyrs for the confession of Christ depicted in churches. And the same source indicates that Laritano himself drafted the inscriptions which identified the martyrs in each picture and described their sufferings in detail. Now, imagine yourself as a young Jesuit singing the litany in this church, walking in the ambulatory in procession past these images. It's an extraordinary experience. Jesuits learned at the heart of their training to go through a long series of meditations and other exercises known as the spiritual exercises under the leadership of a spiritual director. Part of the exercises involved thinking yourself into places, including biblical places, the crucifixion of Christ, the suffering of the damned in hell, seeing the two standards of the kingdom of God and the devil, and engaging in mental colloquy with the participants in these scenes, meditating slowly, engaging in imagined conversations. The student would form himself and become a Jesuit who knew what his vocation was and would carry it out to the death. In this church and in other churches, 
Martyrdom was presented as a core part of that identity. Martyrdom as triumph, centering on a vision of Jesus as the glorious king of the martyrs, the Jesus who triumphed by his crucifixion. And I'm, giving you, I'm showing you now um, these uh, engravings of the images because they're a bit easier to follow and to see what's going on. It's an extraordinary series which begins with the persecution of the first Christians by Jews recorded in the book of Acts, goes on to the death of Peter and Paul in the time of Nero, and then on to more persecution in the time of Domitian, the time of Trajan, Here you see the death of Perpetua and Felicity. We'll come back to Perpetua at Carthage early in the third century. So the first centuries of the church are presented as a time of persecution. And the student was expected to acquaint himself with each of these martyrs and his or her martyrdom, to know the circumstances and to think about them. Composition of place, imagining yourself into that place, was here made to center on the early Christian experience of death. Now, as I've said before, images of martyrdom in early modern Europe took many different forms. But the forms of the Roman series, this one and the many others that were made in imitation of it, is quite distinctive. Formally, with their pale colors and their elaborate but not uh, well-framed perspective landscapes in the back, they were clearly designed to recall the late antique frescoes that could be and mosaics that could be seen in some places in Rome, particularly in the catacombs. Carefully chosen individual details, um, architectural details or the the dress of the torturers set the stories in antiquity, though they weren't consistently placed there. The most striking point, though, is the contrast between the calm of the martyrs and the horrific precision of the violence being done to them. Modern observers of these paintings, from Charles Dickens, who devoted a swinging passage to them, to the great historian of art and architecture, Rudolf Wittkover, have found them literally impossible to accept in, as any kind of serious work of art. Wittkover described them, in fact, as nauseating, not a work that occurs often in his corpus. But a contemporary who would have known how to read them, Pope Sixtus V, offers a different response. Sixtus was my favorite Renaissance pope, a famously tough pope. He came to the conclave that elected him bent over on a cane. And as soon as the white smoke went through the chimney, he threw the cane away, straightened up, and went about his business. He moved, he moved obelisks around Rome as if they were matchsticks. He filled the papal treasury, something which has been rare in the history of the papacy. He even tried to clear the Roman streets of prostitutes, though he did fail at that. Sixtus burst into tears when he entered the ambulatory of Santa Stefano Rotondo and saw these frescoes. So how do we understand this distinctive pictorial idiom? I think we have to understand it, as one so often has to understand martyrdom in this period, in terms of an effort to meld past and present. Past experience, the experience, for example, of Blandina, offered martyrs the possibility that pain would disappear in the experience of martyrdom thanks to divine help. Or, of course, that a, oh, sorry, that a, uh, oop, 
that uh, divine intervention might occur as it did for St. Agnes and dispel the actual, uh, the actual execution. So there's a kind of consoling message. But at the same time, the instruments and methods of torture and execution are presented in minute detail. And the minute detail of those instruments actually became a besetting interest, not just for these artists, but for the whole community of Roman scholars interested in the early church. Cesare Baronio, though not primarily an antiquary, did his best to find a proper definition for every instrument of torture mentioned in the Roman martyrology. His fellow oratorian, Antonio Galonio, published in 1591 an extraordinary and terrifying treatise on the instruments of martyrdom, a treatise in which the engravings by Tempesta have an oddly quiet feel, almost, almost like the engravings, as Yetza Tauber has pointed out, in contemporary theaters of machines, as if the wheels that torture martyrs and the wheel on which the reader reads his books are somehow the same order of invention. Uh, and in fact, Galonio was a kind of inventor. He was even hired once to help um, break a siege, though he actually failed to do so. Yet his work rich in horrors though it was, was only a prelude to the still more detailed study of Justice Lipsius on the cross, a work which encompassed many forms of execution. Now, it's important to realize that this work, though it looks archaeological, was not. The ancient implements of torture did not survive, and there were few ancient representations of them. What we have here are scholars reading texts, as here, a secondhand reference to this form of execution on a sharp pole, and working with artists to call back into being the machines and the forms of torture that the texts describe. Modern art historians looking at these have often been inclined to psychologize, and not surprisingly. But I don't think psychology of any sort will get us very far. What we have to realize is that early modern societies were theaters of pain themselves, that the instruments shown in these texts had many parallels in the everyday judicial practice of early modern Europe, and that those who reconstructed them had seen similar machines in use often, if not in the courtroom, at least at public executions. This is a world in which, those, in which suspects undergoing inter interrogation are hauled to the ceiling on the strapado, just as this early Christian is represented by Galonio, in which suspected plotters are torn apart on the rack, in which parasites are broken on the wheel. So as these scholars lavish attention on what now seems a chilling imagination of a forgotten world of pain, what they're actually doing is connecting a really existing world of pain and suffering with the promise of salvation and perhaps even protection that the experience of the ancient martyrs offered. These men argued, like all Renaissance scholars, was the equileus a rack, a vertical or a horizontal rack? They found plenty of, plenty of material to argue about that. But there was a method in what now looks like their madness. For what they were bringing together in these portraits of martyrdom was the experience which they hoped might inspire the future martyr and the experience that that martyr might actually undergo. 
Historically, martyrologists have often written, as Eusebius did, in a period of peace after persecution, looking back. But these martyrologists were sending young men around the world into situations where they would be in imminent danger of capture, of torture, of execution. And what I think they tried to do was to take the horror away by making plain what that might entail. As the young Jesuit saw the ancient martyr suffering, he saw what might be in store for him so that there were no secrets in his future, even if he succeeded in taking the third vow and going immediately as a missionary. And one sees in the Jesuit histories that Jesuits in New Spain, Jesuits in Asia, repeated, as the Protestant martyrs did, the words of ancient martyrs as they underwent the experiences. Here, once again, you see a Jesuit being executed in Japan in means, by means that are closely reminiscent of the hanging machines designed by Galonio. So in this case, we have something highly understandable. Though the paintings look strange to us, it's because we don't understand them as we should, as a machine, a technology for producing people who can go through in their own lives and bodies with credit the collapse of time between ancient and modern martyrdom. Now, it may seem strange to you that I lay so much emphasis on the collapse of time, but let me just point out, as I should, that there were many ways of looking at the past in early modern Europe. In previous lectures, I've often emphasized the way scholars came to see distance between themselves and the past, to appreciate change. But most scholars in the Renaissance believed that history was basically unified, that ancient examples served for modern occasions because ancient and modern society resembled one another. Justus Lipsius was not only a student of the cross, he was the greatest student of Tacitus and other Roman historians in his time. And here you see him explaining why to study Tacitus. Tacitus doesn't present you with showy wars or triumphs which serve no purpose except, except your pleasure, with speeches, with agrarian or grain laws which have nothing to do with our time. Behold instead kings and rulers and, so to speak, a theater of our modern life. I see a ruler rising up against the laws, subjects rising up against a ruler. I find the devices that make the destruction of liberty possible and the unsuccessful effort to regain it and the evils that accompany liberty regained, chaos, rivalry, greed, looting. Good God, he is a great and useful writer. Now here you have a program offered to students at the most innovative university in Europe, Leiden, a program for collapsing time, for using the experience of emperors and subjects in Tacitus's Rome to guide their lives in modern Europe. In this respect, the way that Protestants and Catholics imagined martyrs and sought guidance from their cases was exemplary. Now, of course, Protestant and Catholic styles in presenting martyrdom differed. Here you have Fox's version of the frying of St. Lawrence on his griddle. Here you have um, Cavalieri's version from Santo Stefano Rotunda. And you can see many differences between the classically naked figure here and the clothed figure, the tonsured Catholic head of the martyr, and the bearded, hairy Protestant who's here. Uh, there, there clearly is an effort in the one case to emphasize that the early church did not look Catholic, and on the other to emphasize a kind of visual continuity. 
Catholics tended to emphasize orthodox martyrs. Protestants liked to read against the grain and argue that heretics had actually been martyrs, that those who opposed the Roman church and died for it were as true martyrs as those in the early church. But really, they had a great deal in common. It's true that Protestants saw the martyr as bearing witness. Catholics saw the martyr more as reliving a particular experience more densely and particularly than the Protestants did. But the impact of these experiences and forms of exposure must have been strikingly similar. Both Protestant and Catholic martyrologists saw themselves as enrolled as the ancient martyrs had been in a battle of good against evil. That was the conviction that they sought to spread. And that was precisely the conviction with which many Jesuits went forth from the colleges of Germany and Hungary and the other Roman colleges to serve not just as missionaries, but as leaders in the civil wars that split France and the Netherlands in this period on religious lines. As the Protestant, as Protestant and Catholic prelates called for monarchocide, called for the killing of kings who did not support the true church, one begins to see the way in which martyrology could contribute to what the great historian Natalie Davis has called the rights of violence in the 16th and 17th centuries, Europe's first ideological wars. But the 16th and early 17th centuries witnessed another highly consequential transformation in the experience of ancient martyrdom. On May 31, 1578, vineyard workers on the Via Solaria discovered what they thought was a hollow. It turned out to be a tunnel that led them deep into the earth into an early Christian burial site. Other sites were soon discovered. These were the catacombs, the vast network of tunnels in the soft tufa outside Rome in which thousands of Christians and a substantial number of Jews had been buried from the end of the second century on. The catacombs were never totally forgotten. In the 15th century, uh, avant-garde humanists held parties in the catacombs and scratched their names on the walls uh, and got in deep trouble with the Pope for doing so. Um, scholars always knew that the catacombs had been seen as very important in early Christianity. St. Jerome recorded how he had descended into them to see the graves of particular martyrs. Pope Damasus had treated them as the, as the cemeteries of martyrs. And when Bartolomeo Platina wrote his 15th century history of the popes, he described what he'd seen on the Appian Way. Even today, we can still see the ashes and bones of the martyrs. We can still see the little shrines where sacrifices were carried out privately since the public edict of certain emperors forbade their being offered to God in public. From even before the catacombs were opened, in other words, there was some belief that they had served not only as burial places, but as shelters for Christian religious services at a time when persecution made it impossible to worship the true God in public. Once the catacombs were opened, reports took exactly this point of view. Here's one of the first reports from just a few months after the opening. One can see with one's own eyes how, in the days of the pagan idolaters, those holy and pious friends of our Lord, when they were forbidden public assemblies, painted and worshipped their sacred images in these caves and subterranean places. It was an extraordinary discovery. 
and it brought the whole community of Roman antiquaries into action, one after another, Pompeo Ugonio, Alfonso Chacon, and above all, Antonio Bozio, bastard son of a member of the Maltese order, who became the greatest of experts on the catacombs. It was an incredibly difficult object to study. Imagine, it's a huge, complicated spaghetti junction of tunnels. Seven to 19 meters down in the earth, dark, dank, some of them descending as many as four stories, punctuated by burial niches which had originally been sealed but sometimes broken into, and larger chambers, oh, their walls exhibiting a riot of religious art. By the 1580s, when Federigo Borromeo visited Rome from Milan, he was astonished at the teamwork he saw in the exploration of this magnificent spectacle. There were then at Rome some young men, Frenchmen and Germans and other nationalities, who were investigating those ancient tombs inspired by piety. Since entering them was like going into the labyrinth, he throws all his metaphors into one basket here. They used, so to speak, the thread of Theseus so they could find the way out. They marked the places to which they wanted to return with signs. Those studious young men drew and described the cemeteries and laid out the paths that had previously been unknown on charts. Thus, these terrestrial sailors could follow them as guides on that subterranean and shadowy ocean. Baronio was not exaggerating. Bozio and the artists who accompanied him into the catacombs and the scholars and artists who took over after he died before completing his work produced a survey of a vast and inaccessible ancient site on a scale that had really never been seen before. They plotted the catacombs as if from above. By the way, there are now Google Maps of some of the catacombs, which are uh, much easier to follow even than these. They imagined what had taken place in the catacombs. They recorded the art that they found and studied its iconography. They laid out the form of the catacombs rather optimistically on the whole. The catacombs look much drier and more comfortable and spacious in Bozio's, in the portrayal in these images than they really do. One point is particularly important. They soon, well before Bozio's book ever reached its magnificent and unwieldy print. It's a great book. You can't lift it. It's a a lot of fun to study. Um, Well before that, this group of scholars in Rome had decided that those buried in the catacombs were martyrs. Not just individual martyrs, but that the catacombs were a burial ground of martyrs. Now, one reason for this was that there were many legends about martyrs being taken to or from the catacombs. This is a a reproduction of a lost Vatican fresco from the atrium showing the bodies of Peter and Paul being taken from the catacombs, um, probably from one of Grimaldi's drawings, which we looked at before. So here you see that there's a massive legend But I think that, as so often happened in this period, a scholarly discovery was particularly important. And as so often happened in the world of early Christianity, a discovery about Jews was particularly important. Baronio, writing his history of the church, was fascinated by the catacombs. He talks about them. He says, I don't know what to call it except an underground city. And as he thought about the catacombs, he came across a passage in the historian Dio Cassius describing the revolt against, of the Jews against the emperor Hadrian in the second century, led by Bar Kokhba. 
Dio says the Jews didn't dare try conclusions with the Romans in the open field, but they occupied the advantageous positions in the country and strengthened them with mines and walls in order that they might have places of refuge whenever they should be hard-pressed and might meet together unobserved underground. And they pierced these subterranean passages at intervals to let in air and light. So the Roman historian imagines these tunnels in Palestine as being a kind of buried set of fortresses. And it's on that light that Baronio imagines the Christian catacombs. What Dio writes about the roads the Jews created underground, he says, clearly resembles very closely the cemeteries that the Christians built as Roman as well in sandy crypts. These were used not only for burying the bodies of the dead, but also to shelter Christians in a time of persecution. So the catacombs are a sign not just of opposition to Christianity, but of a more radical state. And that vision of how the catacombs had functioned hung like a screen between the explorers and the underground world that they were laying open. It led them, for example, to mistake Christian art wildly by subject. Here, uh, an adoration of the Magi is transmogrified into the martyrdom of a Christian by a painter who finds exactly what he's looking for. It led them to believe that relics, bones of those buried in the catacombs, were definitely the genuine products of martyrdom. Giovanni Battista Segni in the standard treatise on relics says, no one is to be received or treated as a martyr unless there's authentic knowledge about his death and origin, or where there's some knowledge of a habitation, as at Rome in the catacombs. Histories attest that the faithful men and women of the early church used to bury the bodies of the saints there with the greatest piety. So Segni, a critical intellectual, is convinced that if you get bones from the catacombs, they will be the bones of martyrs. Bozio began what became a long-term project of exploration, looking for the signs that made certain that a particular set of burial or set of bones belonged to a martyr. For example, the glass and earthenware vessels in which a red residue was found. And here you have him saying of a particular cemetery, in this cemetery there are various vessels of glass and earthenware, and some of which we find the blood of the martyrs and others blood mixed with earth. Editorial edition after his death, Bozio didn't actually say what these vessels looked like, and we didn't find them after he died. So we've decided to show those we found in the same cemetery when some other bodies of the saints were extracted. In other words, once again, if you don't have the evidence, you just invent it, um, knowing the pattern that it has to follow. By the time Bozio's work appeared, the catacombs were understood in a particular key as a repository of those early Christian martyrs' bones. And bones mattered. In a time of religious strife, Catholic communities across Europe, especially those in areas like Switzerland, southern Germany, Austria, Bohemia, which were struggling against Protestant influence, needed more than priests and Jesuit preachers. They needed to make their churches holy. They needed relics for their altars. They needed to sacralize the land in which they were worshiping the true God as Roman land was already sacred because it was soaked with the blood of martyrs as one famous pope said, offering some of it to an ambassador as a relic. 
1588, a committee of cardinals, the Congregation of Rites and Ceremonies, was established to oversee the distribution and uses of relics. The church put a special official in charge of the catacombs and appointed official excavators. And the Swiss guards, who spoke all the relevant languages, took charge of the negotiations. Skeletons were reassembled equipped with names, sealed into caskets, and they began to move, slowly at first, but then in astonishing numbers, to the churches of the north and the churches of the east. Embattled Catholic churches received them with gratitude, welcomed them with magnificent ceremonies, dressed them in unbelievably rich costumes, the work of pious nuns and skilled artisans, and placed them as the centerpiece of church after church, Some of you will know the Peter's Church in Munich, the wonderful church whose bells play the Hofbrauhaus theme, and a church which kept the Latin rite going years after Vatican II, paying no attention to what archbishops or cardinals might say. In that church, some of you have met Die Heilige Munditia, the patroness of women who were alone, who arrived in Munich late in the 17th century, and who is, I'm afraid, as badly attested as most of the other catacomb saints who crossed the Alps. The propensity for inventing martyrs, I guess you could call it the horror of a martyr vacuum, spread. The Iberian church was fiercely um, anti-Protestant, and the Iberian church knew almost nothing about its origins. And so, in 1595, strange leaden plates were discovered on a hill above Granada, written in Arabic but in the characters of Solomon, which told the story of early Christian martyrs, some of them apparently Moriscos, in a strange bid to gain sympathy for the Moriscos who had been terribly oppressed in Spain. These plomos took many years to expose as forgeries. And, the, and forgery forge, and critics had even less success with a wonderful text written by a Jesuit, a great scholar himself named Diguera, The Chronicle of Dexter, published in 1619, which told the story of many early Christian martyrs, including Bonosus and Maximianus, whom you see in an absolutely appalling 18th century painting, and whose statues still adore the cathedral in Jaén in Spain. Roman scholars were horrified to see false martyrs spreading in Iberia, but their criticisms were naturally dismissed as campanilismo and jealousy. So even in the world of martyrdom, a certain grim humor is not totally out of place. Martyrdom, having been a center of critical scholarship, became a center of the creative imagination in the late 16th and 17th centuries. Now, I wouldn't want to argue that all martyrological encounters were of this kind. We saw that Scaliger's was different. And I'd like to give you, before I go, another encounter which I find much more interesting. Lucas Holstenius was a Dane who converted from Protestantism to Catholicism and became librarian of the Vatican. He's a great student of ancient geography and also a great student of hagiography. 
And in the course of research in Monte Cassino, he found the documents, the Passion and other texts, of Saints Felicity and Perpetua, two women saints who were executed with male friends in the arena at Carthage in 203 of the Christian era. Perpetua was a well-known saint. St. Augustine had preached about her, but the texts hadn't been seen in hundreds of years. And they are extraordinary texts. Perpetua records visions, visions of a shepherd who takes her on his shoulders, visions of an evil Egyptian with whom she wrestles after anointing herself with oil and whom she treads underfoot, visions of a terrifying ascent of a frightening ladder. They're extraordinary. And Holstenius had no trouble explicating them because he knew the art of the catacombs. And so he knew that when Perpetua had a vision of a shepherd, her vision was a vision of the Savior cast in the most popular visual idiom of early Christianity. Most remarkable, though, is Holstenius's response to Perpetua the person. Perpetua, like Anne Askew, and I see her as much more like Anne Askew than Blandina was, was another woman of consummate self-possession, extraordinary courage, and remarkable articulateness. At one point, she explains to her father what it means to be a Christian. Father, can you see this vase that's lying here, or water pot, or whatever it is? And he said, I see it. And I said to him, well, can this be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no, that's it. I can only call myself what I am, a Christian. It's as direct and homely and sharp as Anne Askew. I use this passage with young students who want to go to graduate school in the humanities. I ask them to take the perpetua test. (laughs) Can you say that you are a scholar and nothing else? And if they can, I'll write them a letter of recommendation. But what's extraordinary is the way this passage has been tortured. In the 20th and 21st centuries, we love to have texts by women from the ancient and medieval worlds, and this is one of the earliest female texts that we have. Scholars have hurled themselves upon it, as Benvenuto Cellini says, like hunger on a loaf. And they have found echoes of the most learned things. Imagine that Perpetua, or the man who wrote Perpetua, which many suspect, has been suspected of having read Plato's Cratylus, in which he argues that names reflect the real essences of things in order to tell her dad that just as a jar is a jar, she's a Christian. Holstenius had read his Plato, but he, when he read Perpetua, read her against Christian texts from the same period. He knew that Christians prided themselves on telling the truth about what they were. That was what she was referring to. Tertullian complains that the pagans tortured Christians who confessed exactly what they were, though usually it's those who refuse to admit who they are who are tortured by the law. Again and again, Holstenius contextualizes and admires this extraordinary woman. Again and again, he doesn't identify her with his own time. He doesn't try to make her something she isn't. He sees her as the profoundly fascinating, disturbing, and alien figure that he is. That kind of scholarship happened too. And though Holstenius died too early to take part in it, 
By the 1630s, a great dream team of Jesuits based in Antwerp were at work on a project that lasted for more than 300 years, the creation of the Acta Sanctorum, which finally sorted out almost everything we can know about the martyrs and what they did and what they suffered, a project that ended, as so many great scholarly projects that have these origins do, by involving Protestants as well as 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 Catholic scholars. Even in this frightening territory of martyrdom, in other words, there was some room for extremes to touch. There was some room, as time went on, for both passionate identification with the martyr's spirit and wild imagination about the numbers of the army of martyrs hidden in the catacombs to give way to a historical inquiry that did some justice to that strangeness which we still feel when we study the early church. Thank you. This has been the National Gallery of Art podcast. 